1: This is Stand Up, Speak Up, the podcast that
2: raises awareness and encourages support to those feeling hurt, lost, or forgotten.
0: On this episode, Carla connects with one of her best friends, TV journalist Ashley Banfield, who you may have seen over the last few decades reporting from New York during 9-11, or the ensuing war in Afghanistan. She's appeared on CNN, HLN, MSNBC, ABC News, NBC News, True TV, and Court TV. And if you're one of the types who's managed to skirt the news all for the last 30 years, maybe you caught her on House of Cards on Netflix, where she played herself. Carla and Ashley have a friendship that dates back to Lake of the Woods, Ontario, where both families have summered since, well, the dawn of time. Fun fact, the local TV station in Kenora, Ashley got her start in journalism there. So there they were five months into the pandemic. Carla and Ashley got together on a Sunday afternoon and we pick up the conversation at the beginning.
1: What
2: is the brand of Ashley Banfield?
1: I don't know. <laughs> I never planned it. I never planned it, and yet it never leaves my mind. Does that make any sense? Mm-hmm. It seems a little crazy. I'm always trying to penetrate the American culture at all levels, which is a very daunting task because the American culture is just so myriad, but. I try to tap in on a daily basis because I really think it shifts so fast that if you try to latch on to one brand or one idea or one area of focus, by the time you've honed it, it's gone. So I think that I am a sort of a morphing entity, if that makes any sense. So I for a long time, I was the girl with the glasses. And then I was the girl who was the war correspondent. And then I was the girl who was the legal analyst. And, yes. and then I was the girl who did some White House and Pentagon and then CNN and then MSNBC. So it's it's sort of a hodgy-podgy. I like to think that I am a reflection of whatever else is out there and, and trying to be the best at it. Would you
2: say three words to describe you? I mean, I know what I think they would be, but I'd like to hear what you think they would be. Three words to describe you
1: manic, tired, frustrated. <laughs> That's good. Okay. Yes. That yes. Be, that might be because I'm sitting in my house with two kids who've been e learning for the last four months and I've been working of the office and I'm going mental. But looking
2: from the outside and knowing you for the number of years, I would say resourceful, resilient, and I also think you have a high level of integrity and honesty that sometimes is what might cause some of the, the downfalls because other people don't follow the same sense of integrity.
1: Like, I, I, of course, I strive for integrity. I've always strived, I've been, been striving to, um, to do the best journalistic work I, I could do. And usually that means bringing exactly what I'm seeing to the screen without the polish and the lighting and the the homogenizing. And sometimes that rubs people the wrong way because I sometimes don't want to edit things. I want to leave Mm -hmm. the oops in because I think the oops part is the natural part. And Mm -hmm. I feel as though that will transport people into the natural action far better than a nice polished edited script that has had 50 eyeballs on it and perfect lighting. So yeah, it's a different way of working. It's bringing an authenticity, sometimes into a machine that tries to, you know. So would
2: you say, what would you say your three, kind of the three things you stand for? When I hire Ashley Banfield, this is what I get. What do I get?
1: Well, you get 33 years of experience, which I think is hard to find these days. And I think that's really important. That encompasses a whole array as a whole other podcast, Mm -hmm. right? Like contacts and knowledge and live knowledge and blah, 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 blah. But I think what has worked best for me and sometimes worked against me is authenticity. I just bring the real McCoy and Mm -hmm. I ask the questions that feel right, even though they might be uncomfortable. And I like to bring the me that's authentic. I like to talk like me. I like to roll my eyes when I uh, when it feels mm-hmm. right. And that may not be how Diane Sawyer would have done it. And again, that's great because it's unique and I think people like authenticity. But others who maybe are uncomfortable presenting as anything other than anchor lady because that's mm-hmm. easy and that's comfortable and you can assume that character might feel like, "Hey, don't shift the machine. The machine works for me."
2: You're also a very hard worker. I mean, you bring it, a that, lot yes. of hard work to the table and you're very obsessed with details and making yes. sure the facts are right.
1: I don't know how you know that. I mean, that's insane. You, should, you shouldn't you should know that. But the truth is, is that I'm a fiend about working hard at, at something. And I'll give you an example. Right now, under COVID, I can't shoot documentaries. I can't sell my shows in Los Angeles. I can't get on a plane. I, there's so much that I haven't been able to do for four months. I'm kind of stuck. However... Court TV decided to reignite, and they're a startup again, and they're a very small little entity, and they're growing. But they said, hey, why don't you join us as a contributor? It just means show up at 8, show up at 9, and talk about some of the cases of the day. Just, you know, maybe read up a little bit beforehand. We'll send you some some material, and then you can give us your opinion about it. And that's great. What an easy job. But instead of it being a half-hour job per day, I've made it a 12 to 14 hour job. I start mm-hmm. at 9.30 in the morning. I join, the, I join their morning call. And then I start pitching ideas and interview ideas. And then I start getting on the phone and booking experts and people who from my very vast background in, in law and justice. And then I start writing up graphics. <laughs> and then I start <laughs> doing all this stuff. And I totally have given them a full-time employee. Mm-hmm. And not only just a full-time employee, a full-time and a half employee putting yes. in 12 hours. And they're just like, Oh my God, are you kidding me? Like, keep it coming. But I can't do anything less. I feel like if I did anything less, it would be phoning it in and embarrassing.
2: You know, to think of three to five situations where someone made you feel so small and so insignificant and how you were able to move past that.
1: I'll give you a perfect example. And I won't say what network or what person. There was a, a woman who worked at a, a same outfit that I worked at. And I remember being so in awe of her brilliance on air, just sharp as a tack, and so poised and so capable. And when I met her, I was so, so excited because I thought, oh, this is going to be somebody I really want to ally with and and uh, and maybe we could be great friends. And I remember feeling the just from the look right away, how much he didn't like me and how much she thought that I was less than, not capable, not worthy, shouldn't be there, don't know why you're here, but get out of my way. And not in a jealous way. It wasn't that. It wasn't the typical cat fight that everybody loves to ascribe to female relationships that don't go well in business. That wasn't it at all. It was more, she was superior to me and she knew it and she Didn't want to throw down the helping hand to say, come on up on here, up on top, because it's a lot of fun and that we could really do great things together. But rather than having a a sophomoric response to that, which would have been like, "Hmm, bitch, (laughs) I'll get you. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I thought, "Nope, this is my project. I am going to figure out a way to get her on my side. And I am going to figure out a way to be a partner with her. And it didn't take long. It took about a year. Which you know, in broadcast terms, isn't very long, but maybe for kids getting into the business is an eternity. It didn't take long, but here I am, many many years later, and that woman is one of my dearest friends, and we both learn from each other, both help each other, both pump each other up when we're down, and uh, and it's a perfect example of how women who go with their instinct right away, which is usually to sort of recoil at someone who's nasty to you, are doing themselves a great disservice. Because women are their best allies. And -hmm. there's tons of room at the top. Mm -hmm. They think there's no room at the top, but there's tons of room at the top. And I think after a while, she maybe felt that way, or at least maybe I got through to her that I wasn't as pathetic as she thought I was. (laughs) But I'm so glad (laughs) that I took that project on because I feel like she's been one of my most valuable allies in the business. Do you guys talk about this openly and laugh about it now? I never, ever mentioned it. Never, never. Nope. I didn't want to go there. I just I yes, I just okay. wanted, a, I wanted a natural progression of a relationship that resulted in an authentic and real relationship that didn't need to be massaged on the way there. I just let it progress as a natural friendship. There was a guy who worked for Peter Jennings. Oh, man, this is going back. This is going back to like 1992, I think. And Peter Jennings was on location in Vancouver, and I happened to be working there looking for a job, and I heard World News Tonight was coming to cover the Clinton-Yeltsin summit. And I right away dialed up Jennings and said, hey, last year in Moscow, I was traveling through Russia, and I, uh, well, Soviet Union at the time, and I helped you for free, you know, um, and I want to do the same thing, because now I'm in Vancouver, and I know everybody here, and I can help be a little fixer, and I can do whatever for free, you know. So he said, great jump on board and and that was terrific. So there I was. Jennings was so, so nice to me because I had offered myself up for free and did all this running around in, in in Moscow for them the year prior. And so I was lucky I got to be in the broadcast tent. And I remember the flap opened and there were two university students who peeked in and sort of put their finger up saying, can we ask a question? And I walked over because everybody else was busy and I thought, well, I'm here to do whatever is is in, you know, I don't have a defined job. I'm doing all every job, anything that's needed, I do it. So I went over to the kids and I said, hi, what's up? And they said, oh, Mr. Jennings said he's going to do an interview with us. You know, he said it was this time, but it looks like he's busy. And I said, yeah, he's still doing some of the recordings, but it looks to me like he's probably going to be done in about 10 minutes. So why don't, why don't you guys just hold steady outside the tent, and then as soon as he's able, I'll let him know you're out there. And they're like, great, thanks. And I thought, oh, well, that was easy. And boy, didn't I just do a great job. And 10 minutes later, Peter stopped down from recording. And I said, hey, Peter, there's a couple of students from University of British Columbia. And apparently, they've organized an interview with you. They're waiting outside. And he goes, oh, great, perfect. So we all were starting to walk outside the tent. And Peter came out. And the two students were there. And he joined them. And everything was working out great. And then this guy who worked with Peter, again, shall remain nameless. I don't know what he was, but he had something to do with PR. Came up to me and said, can I speak to you? I said, yeah, sure, no problem. And he pulls me away around the back of the tent. And I'm thinking, oh, this is weird. What's going on? And he, as soon as we got out of view and out of audio shot of everybody, he came at me in my face. And I have never, at that time, I'm what, twenty three or four or 20, I don't know, something like that. And it was the vitriol like I'd never experienced in a professional setting, you know? And he sort of just acidically said, if you ever come near Peter Jennings and my job of organizing bookings again, I will crush you. You're just a little too eager for my liking. You know what I mean? And it was, I I was almost like, first of all, I felt a lump in my throat like a little girl. And I was, I was about to like burst into tears. And I thought, don't, yes. do don't do it. 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 You're not five. But I felt sick. I wanted to throw up and I didn't know what to say. I didn't know how to defend myself. Now I'd say, who the fuck do you think you are speaking to me like that? Spin on your heel. I'm going to HR. I mean, that's what I would do now. Yeah, of course. <laughs> you know, right. I was because, excited, and this was a grown up, And I just felt mm-hmm. like, What's just happened? I thought I was doing everything right and I thought I was so helpful and this is what I did not know I was breaching, you know. Um, Do you really
2: believe you went to HR at that time? No, like, not given was... a shit.
1: No. And PS, I wasn't an employee. I was this little, you know, I was this little yeah. intern they hired from Vancouver for uh, for 3 days, you know. Yes. So no, and I didn't even know what HR was I think at that point. So I just remember how a grown man in yeah. his 30s or 40s, probably 30, late 30s went after a a new kid Mm -hmm. with such anger and vitriol. And I just thought, wow, what a coward, what a creep, what an asshole. But back then I just thought, what have I done? I don't even know what I've done, but I can't believe I just got attacked like that. Like I, have you seen him since? Have you, have you ever been able to? Karma is a bitch. He's dead. He died about, uh, I think 20 years ago. Wow. Karma is a bitch. Carmen is a bitch.
2: Let's talk about Roger Isles because uh-huh. I know that he 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 referred to you as a an actress, a reporting actress, or what was the exact term? He news said? actress.
1: The scariest A news time.
2: actress. Yes. The, yes. The
1: serious time, right? This is after yeah. he had hired Geraldo Rivera. I'm the news actress. <laughs> I know. He'd hired Geraldo, and Geraldo got in a lot of trouble in Afghanistan for drawing a line in the sand and doing some very dramatic things. And it was all within the same couple of weeks. He called me a news actress when that stuff had been like plaguing the press about, about Geraldo getting in trouble for carrying a gun, which was illegal and could result in death penalty. How did that make
2: you feel? What did it feel like when you,
1: Carla, I also clued in really fast to the fact that he was trying to bring down my brand, because at that point I was on the cover of Vogue magazine and was like this massive rising star. And he's like, oh shit, she's on at nine o'clock and that's not good. So I, I saw right away that this wasn't personal because Roger had just the year before offered me hundreds of thousands of dollars to come and work at his network. So how could he have changed his tune so fast, right? All of a sudden, he went at me twice with a counter offer and a counter offer. And instead I went to NBC. So I knew full well what that meant. It's like, well, you're doing well at NBC. You're now... And the nine o'clock spot on MSNBC, which is now Rachel Maddow's spot. And that was very damaging to his nine o'clock primetime spot. So he went after me and just tried to make a mess of me. And I just realized that's what they do. That's what they do. They don't try to win, they try to make others lose.
2: There's been lots of things that have happened in your career. And a normal person, there's some things that they would never be able to get over it. And I think. One of the things that I think about when I think about your career is that you gave everything you had to the network and they got you a show. You traveled around the world, probably exhausted, trying to do everything on a budget, which you told me many times that you worked on a small budget, and then for them to come after you and cancel the show. I mean, and you were so loyal
1: to them. Yeah, yeah. it was a—it uh, it was the biggest gut punch I've ever had professionally. And I'm still not over it. That was 2002, uh, mm-hmm. so 18 years later, I'm still not over it. And I've never been told why. I think that might be the hardest part too. There were all sorts of rumors that Katie Couric saw me as a threat when the president of the network, Neil Shapiro, started trotting me out as the next Today Show host when he was in contract negotiations with her. She was none too kind to me. I heard lots of stuff off mic. And then there were the NBC people who used to te- treat the MSNBC people like dirt because we were this little startup. There were NBC people who actually said the words, I don't do MSNBC. And that's all changed. But back then, I was that MSNBC, and uh, the NBC people were ruthless. They said awful things. I remember somebody saying a horrible thing about me in a Tom Brokaw meeting, and it got back to me because. One of my allies was in that meeting and told me all about it. And Brokaw went to my defense and, and said to this employee, like, I think the employee was pointing at the screen and I was in Afghanistan and, and they said something derogatory, like, "Ugh, she's everything wrong with this place. And, and Brokaw said, you're having a, like the equivalent of you're having a latte in New York City. And that girl's working 22 hours a day in a war zone and is doing a great job. I'm sorry, did you want to repeat what you just said? So he came to bat for me, which was great. But that gave you the idea of what the NBC people were saying about the MSNBC people. And I think that might have had something to do with it too. But Carla, it wasn't even the canceling of the show. That didn't crush me. It was the the basementing. They took me off the air and they stuck me in a closet. And they made me write out 17 months of contract without being visible or able to leave. And so I had all sorts of like really amazing offers. Les Moonves at the time, who was, you know, not the Les Moonves we know now, um, was trying to get me to come over and do CBS this morning. I was locked in the NBC contract. CNN had a meeting with me and wanted me to come over and do the CNN morning show. I was locked in a contract. And so for 17 months, my brand just bled into the abyss because I was put in the basement, not allowed to appear, not allowed to do interviews, not allowed to be seen. And I, I vanished. I just vanished for the better part of two years. And that was what crushed me, that they did that to me. And I thought, why? I mean, obviously, they didn't want me to take the, the very powerful brand at that time and and you know make that an asset somewhere else. But if they thought it was an asset, then why, why weren't they using me? So that was the really mean, mean-spirited thing. And that was, I, that was pretty much a, a Neil Shapiro thing. He was the president of NBC News at the time. And it was kind of his doing, and I could never figure out why, because I'd never had a crossword with him, never had an issue with him. He was the well, one that was asking me to come and be, you know, to think about maybe the stepping up in the game and rumoring me to be the next replacement for the Today Show for Katie Couric. So I couldn't figure it out. I think
2: when I look back to those days, and I do remember it happening and reading some of the news and thinking how crushing that would be for, I mean, I can't imagine... At the time, I was also moving up in my career, and I, and I couldn't imagine that because it becomes what happens when we see something happen to someone else. We think how easy it, it is to happen to all of us right. because we put the power in other people's hands.
1: Right. And all that relaxed. is the
2: reality
1: of yeah. business.
2: But what really stayed with me is that you just come back from being in these insane countries and s- having crazy experiences and your mental health was not even taken care of or, or focused on or managed. Yeah. It's like they just had no, no compassion, no, no compassion and no yeah. empathy to think, wow, she's been around the world seeing shit. Nobody should see.
1: Yeah. No compassion and also no protection. The NBC employees had former British Royal Marines as their security guards who were armed. And we had no one. We had us, four of us, a producer, an audio guy, a cameraman, and me. And we hired Mujahideen troops to be our own sec- Like We literally had to negotiate with the governor of Nangarhar province to give us some of his troops, you know, so that we could go from Jalalabad to Kabul. But NBC gave the NBC people actual protection but they didn't give us any and we didn't even know about it for four months like i was like are you fucking kidding me (laughs) you left us out here to the lions is that how worthless we are but
2: no but let's talk about what you saw I mean I know it's not something you like to remember and and talk about but just for the audience to understand Hmm. what you were up against I think it just makes it all the worse for what happened because you yeah, I mean listen
1: hey war correspondent to war correspondence you sign up for that gig and that's not like you can come back and say, "Wow, it was hard." No, you do what you do because you accept the deal and you go and mm-hmm. it's not easy and um I got to say the the hardest work that I did in terms of gore was in the West Bank in Gaza. That was the hardest. Afghanistan, although bloody, was not you know, it wasn't easy to see a lot of it. Look, four journalists only an hour and a half ahead of us were butchered to death and their caskets came back passing us. That was hard, but it wasn't gory. I don't have the PTSD from that. And I'll be honest with you, Afghanistan was such a hard job. Like it was literally 22 hours a day. And I kid you not, we slept for two hours. We slept from 11 PM to 1 AM. And that was it. And started the whole thing over again. And it was That gave me PTSD just knowing like I was so exhausted. There'd be no way I could pull that off now. I was in my 30s back then and I could manage it, barely. But the gore, I mean, seeing, you know, rows and rows of shot up bodies in Gaza was way, way harder. Actually, no, the rows and rows of bodies was in West Bank. In Gaza, we were in a tank with the Israeli um, Defense Forces, cruising through the purple zone in the southern Gaza Strip, which is like an it's a United Nations protected zone. But it's not protected. It's the Israelis use it and the Palestinians fight constantly. And they were throwing, shooting rockets at us. And one of the rockets landed just 20 feet ahead of the tank and the tank friggin, you know, shook and it's not comfortable inside a tank, by the way. It's like hitting your head against rocks. And so soldiers opened fire with m60s and if you've ever been really close like this far away like a foot away from a from an m60 it's deafening and we didn't have earphones phones on and so you know all of a sudden the rocket blast we get thrown around the m60 opens up and the guy who fired the rocket was blown to smithereens in front of us it was just like all of it was just a lot to process but i for some reason again i think i was on this hamster wheel that was running so fast i didn't really process it so i'm just like let's go let's go you know not oh no, my inner inner child didn't have a moment.
2: (laughs) Are you really good at compartmentalizing, would you say?
1: I've, I've had to come that way, sure, because if you don't, you're screwed.
2: That's difficult to do when you're stuck in a basement doing stuff you're not inspired to do.
1: Well, when things slow down is when life just comes crushing forward into your eye sockets that's when it starts to really bug you.
2: Well, in that time, you did have some happiness because you met
1: uh-huh. Howard, wasn't it? Yeah, that probably was the only thing that saved me because, you know, I was pretty suicidal um, after after the NBC.
2: Wait, I didn't. Uh, okay, let, let's go back to that. Like, how how did you let people know that it was this bad for you?
1: I didn't. I couldn't. I let my mom know and my family, but you can't like you're a public figure. And if you are that fragile, you're finished. Maybe that was part of the problem is that I couldn't find help. There was nowhere to go for help, you know, and I didn't attempt suicide. Let me, let me be frank, Mm -hmm. but it was on my mind. Like I got to get out. I can't live this way. I can't live with this pain. And, you know, I think a lot of people who would listen to that now would say, Oh, suck it up. You whiner, you lost your job. Fuck's sake. You know? And I, and I agree. I can't disagree, but just for me alone, it was the biggest thing in the world. It was the biggest Mm -hmm. thing that I had. It was the only thing I had my whole life revolved Mm -hmm. around what I had been doing for a decade and a bit. And the vacuum was so profound I had no other headspace. I had nowhere else to live to realize there's other things in this world. And, and it just consumed me. So sometimes I now look at people and I think when they say, woe is me, it is bad for them. Like yeah. my kids, right? Like if you're yes. having a fight with a friend, it is their whole yeah, life. You I can't agree. call them dramatic. You can't say that your 14-year-old or 13-year-old is dramatic, suck it up, whiner. You can't because yes. it's their entire world crushing down on them. Mm-hmm. And so it's their mind is exploding. And you have to understand that.
2: I really believe that the failure of my mobile app business is what gave me cancer. I was crushed. And to this day, if I think about it, talk about it, I can go right back to that time. And just, and I don't know, you know what, I've tried to get help on it. I talked about it at my circle of strength of one of the areas of vulnerability. And I just said, that was the lowest moment of my life and such shame mm-hmm. and failure. And, you know, people think that that could be the cancer. And I'm like, oh, God, I don't, I, you know, that doesn't make me cry because it's not full of shame.
1: Listen, I'm not surprised. Your, your mental well-being drives your physical and yeah. so I wouldn't be the least bit surprised if your body just kind of had been on this treadmill marathon and then just stopped and your head took over yeah. and just sent every bad vibe through everything. Yes. It wouldn't surprise me in the least.
2: Because I think shame, it's the worst thing that anyone can feel is shame. Mm. And it's so unfortunate that we feel shame over things we couldn't even control or maybe right. we're just a lesson but shame is what i think really is the cause of a lot of suicides and a lot of extreme Wait. mental health because on the outside right you've accomplished more than 99.9% of the population but on the inside you don't give a shit because
1: you feel like you've completely failed. Yeah. Like yeah, you're, you're, right. the good, it's like a golf game. You can't whine about your bad shots. There's like, there's like a hundred shots and out of a hundred shots in an 18 hole round, some of them have to be bad, right? Like if you ski a mountain from top to bottom, every turn's not going to be perfect. There's going to be a bunch of really lousy yes. ones. You're going to get out a little but Generally speaking, overall, you're probably going to look pretty good, you know?
2: And I feel and like I, that. I talk like that because I feel like in my situation, you know, I have to encourage others and be inspirational. But on the inside, I'm really shitty at living up to that concept.
1: Yeah, yeah, right? Like, practice what you preach? Yeah. Yeah,
2: because I'm just like, fuck, let me dwell in my failure. (laughs) (laughs) How did you, like, how did you find the support you needed? You met Howard.
1: Yeah. So I met him and I kind of dived right into, you know, that life and then planned a wedding all on my own, which there's a reason there's wedding planners. Jesus. But, you know, (laughs) kept me busy. (laughs) And I needed I needed my head to be somewhere else. You know, I remember I watched the entire series of Sex and the City. Immediately after I was told my show was canceled and they wouldn't tell me what what was gonna happen next. Like they Mm -hmm. they said, yeah, your show's canceled, we'll call you and let you know what happens next. And they didn't. They didn't call me to let me know what happens next for three months. And I was like at home, not knowing where to go, not knowing where do I go to work. If I if I'm not doing that show, what desk do I go to? What you know, what building do I go to? You know, and they didn't call me or let me know that. And that was a really bad low point. So I I remember watching Sex in the City from start to finish and thinking that was the only way to escape feeling so horrible every day. It was just to get into a TV screen and be taken away somewhere. And and that helped. And I have found that escaping into a TV series has helped me get away from very painful times, professional painful times.
2: We are so identical (laughs) listening to you. And I'm like, nobody understands how important when I'm feeling anxious or overwhelmed, how important TV is to me Mm -hmm. and to not, not, not fuck around with my TV.
1: Right, don't mess with me. Yeah, like
2: I, I got to do this, or I'm going to snap everybody's head off in this room. So please leave.
1: <laughs> well, I yeah. can
2: just watch hours of TV while I feel sorry for myself.
1: Yeah, or it takes away this feeling. Sorry, yes, time. that's what I found is that. Oh my God, this feeling sorry for myself. By the way, is such a negative term, but it's a real term. It, it, you feel sick about you. You know, you feel sick about you. you 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 gross you out. And that's not a healthy headspace. No. So I think it feeling sorry for yourself should probably be renamed. Because right now it sounds like you're pathetic and petty. But it's a real Yeah. No, it's, 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 real. It's, a, it's a little illness. It's a it's a mini illness that you gotta that's, I
2: change. always think when people try to rename things or make something feel not as bad, I'm always like, why? What the fuck?
1: It's good the
2: way it is. is. I feel like shit and I feel sorry for myself and my life sucks and shut up. And I know that I have it good compared to others, but some days I can't do gratitude. I can't do positive thinking Um, because that takes work. It takes work. And for you being on the air, when life is shitty, it doesn't matter. You got to just get up there and
1: sometimes those are the inauthentic times and it's really hard being natural in an unnatural environment. Like that's what doing TV is right now. Sit on this really uncomfortable set that shows your legs when you don't want to show them stare over here. And it's not a natural position to be in and I'm going to have really bright light shining in your eyes and do this, maybe read this part on a prompter, but make it natural and then go off onto yourself unprompted. And so go between the two and, and make it look as though, you're having a living room conversation. Being natural in a really unnatural environment is, is, is makes TV hard. Now add, I feel like shit, and, mm-hmm. and don't don't make that come across, you know. So that was probably the the, le- the times that I've been inauthentic have been when I have just felt so awful and have had to be the same Ashley on the air as always. I, I think I mastered it though. I just feel like a bit of a cheat. How was it going
2: through the divorce, and having to act like you have it all together and it's all going to be okay. And
1: I think that's the compartmentalizing car. I really Mm -hmm. do. I think, you know, when I got to work, everything went away because again, a busy mind doesn't toil in the stuff that brings you down. So the minute I walk into the office, I mean, for better or for worse, television news is an extremely stressful deadline job. It's like working on the trading floor. No wonder people burn out. You're working under deadline every day, every minute of the day, including the time that you're at home. Because when you're at home, you're still fielding all the emails and planning for tomorrow because, oh my God, tomorrow's already upon us, right? So a deadline job in television takes everything else out of the mix. I can't think about my kids going to school. I can't think about the doctor's appointment later. I have to have that set up before I go. And I certainly can't think about who's making me sad at the moment. You know, I guess in a way, maybe that inauthentic stuff went away even before I jumped up on the set because I was just so freaking busy in the ten hours leading up to that show. I didn't have a whole lot of time to toil, and how sad I was that I was being, you know, involved in this awful divorce.
2: You know, I know your your family, as you know, probably better than most. Not as well as, of course, my sister Kim does. Who you know, my my you know, de facto sister in law. Yep, yeah, that's right. <laughs> um, and your mom is a strong, amazing, beautiful woman. However, she's she's tough. There is no being lazy <laughs> with her. And how hard is that, do you think, to live up to expectation of, Ashley, you don't have time to cry, get back up there. You no, know, Ashley, just reinvent uh-huh. yourself. Put your glasses back on, take your glasses off, move to Texas, like, just do what you have to do. Yeah. You stay on top and stop feeling sorry for yourself. So
1: I think, you know, rather than the uh, episodic lessons, you know, like, mom, I lost my job. And then the you know, the episodic lesson follows that. I think those were less valuable than the overall life model that Mm -hmm. I got from my mom, because sure, uh, she was a great shoulder to cry on and always has been and is to this day. And you know she says the the perfunctory things like they're almost like platitudes. We all say the same things. Oh, I'm so sorry. Oh, things will get better. You know, everybody says the same things, right? And sure, they make you feel a little better because at least someone's there to say them. But overall, the greatest value that I think mom has provided is this Jane Fonda-like character that's unbreakable and has had a ton of shit thrown her way, and she's unbreakable. So Mm -hmm. I guess if I look at that as my norm in life, then I think I instinctively just work harder to be stalwart and resilient, right? Mm -hmm. Instead of needing guidance at every low point, I think the guidance that you need, or at least for me, the guidance that I needed at my low points was just someone's still there, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Somebody's still there, right? That cares about me. But the rest of it was just, she led by example.
2: I think parents are so complicated. I, I, I mean, my my son says to me all the time, mom, why do you care what your parents think? You're like 50 years old and you don't always tell them the truth because you're afraid they won't agree with your decision. Right. You get hurt if they don't seem to care about something you care about. And is it only me that's like that? No. I don't know. You know what I mean? Like, is there still that for you at your age that it matters what they think?
1: Yes and no. I think more my dynamic with my mom now, because she's my only surviving parent now, including step-parent, but I think the dynamic now is, again, a busy person can only manage so much. And so you're selective in what you present to your parents because you don't have time for that large conversation about it. So there are certain things I'll I'll maybe not present to my mom because I, I physically don't have the hour. Yes. And my mom's a little forgetful as as I'm forgetful at 52. Yes. She's forgetful at 82. And, and nowhere near the commensurate level that I would be at 82, right? I'm going to be a mess at 82, given where I am now. But sometimes we've already had that conversation and she'll start to engage in it again. And, and I don't have the time, nor do I sort of have the mental capacity to sort of handle it again and so that's sometimes where I find it a little difficult and I feel mean if I say mom let's not go there stop you know I I feel mean because for her it might be well what do you mean it's sort of the first time we're getting into it and I deserve to be in this conversation too so it's a a delicate dance right when you're dealing with it is
2: well let's talk about your dad Mm. that was a difficult relationship would, would you would you agree? I don't want to be putting words in your mouth.
1: Yeah, I think the problem with my, you know, my dad has the illness of alcoholism. And, mm-hmm. you know, back in that day, it was such a negative, right? Like yeah. that's you, that's your problem. That's your mm-hmm. a fail, you're failing. You're not a failure if you have cancer, right? No. no one would ever call you, you know, it's an illness. That wasn't something you chose. Mm-hmm. And I think alcoholism is a lot the same way. Yes, we all have a drink and we choose to do that. But I have drinks all the time and I don't desire them. I don't think the same for a lot of people, obviously. And I think my dad was one of them and he could not uh, manage it. So I look at that as an illness that people don't choose. And I think his alcoholism really reached its pinnacle when the other kids were already gone. You know, they'd already gone off to college and, and I'm in the house. And so I sort of felt like I got the brunt of it. And I was also kind of there for the divorce. And so I got the brunt of all that, the family collapse, alcoholism, the the one-on-one relationship without other kids there. And I think for that reason, I have a different perspective than my siblings do. I mean, I, I think I know that at this point, Yes. but at the same time, you know, dad was a lot of fun and loads of people have wonderful memories of my dad and I have good memories of my dad on the piano. And he was just a super fun guy, you know, to be around in the early years, obviously in my teen years, I didn't find them that fun to be around. How did Um,
2: you find, as a teen, Yeah. when you saw your dad drunk or passed Mm -hmm. out, how did that make you feel as a teenager?
1: So, to be really clear, my dad was never an alcoholic to the point where he was passed out all over the place. I'm like, oh, we got to take his shoes off. It wasn't like that. But he was a chronic drinker, right? He'd be drinking all day. And so he was just always off. And it's awful. And, and it's so funny because I, I talked to my children about it today and I have never been tipsy around them mm-hmm. because I remember how awful I, I didn't like well, yes. you lose the guy. And you're like, well, who are you? I don't know. who yeah. You're the, you're someone else now. And it's it's not even you're someone else because you're evil. It's just you're just creepy. You're different. Yeah. You're you're weird. Where's my real dad? And so that's not a good feeling for a child to have, even a teenager, you know, it's not a good feeling to lose your real parent to this other odd parent, and especially if it's happening over and over and over. And so I think for that reason, I'm just militant about never being tipsy around my kids, never. I think they've probably seen me with two drinks in me, maybe Mm -hmm. three, Mm -hmm. but they've never seen me. And probably
2: mostly at the cottage when everybody else is having a good time and drinking, yeah. right?
1: Yeah. Well, I don't know. I'm also very aware of my capacities. I would never get to a point where I would slur ever in front of them. And, and quite quick, frankly, I don't have the time or the ability to get that way. Any, anyway, anymore. I don't like the way it feels and I don't like the recovery aspect. So I just don't, I cut it off pretty quick. You know, actually I just don't even get there quickly. I, I, a lot of my drinks are unfinished towards the end of the evening I'm, I'm i they're unfinished. So I think I'm really lucky though, Carla. I don't think that's just my hard work at not being a drunk. <laughs> I think honestly, I think I'm just lucky. I don't desire it that much. I really just don't.
2: Yeah, but I I do think there's a reason for every behavior. My parents don't really drink in front of us because his parents struggled with alcoholism and I've never really had alcohol till I was 40. I mean there's always something wow, are
1: you kidding? Wow.
2: Yeah.
1: Not me. I mean, uh, look, you grew up in Ontario, the drinking yeah. age was 19. I grew up in Manitoba, the drinking age was 18, I was probably drinking at 14, maybe 13. But not a lot. That's the weird thing. Yeah. Like, you know, kids will sample, kids will be naughty. But I never was that I see kids go to college here in the US and they'd have drinking challenges and they drink until they're passed out and, and some die. Yeah. Or passed they, out, and someone. Yes,
2: and that's actually what I wanted.
1: Because of, because of drunk. I wanted behavior. to talk
2: about with you is you're also someone that likes to be in control as often as you can be in yeah. control, right? And being in control doesn't work well with alcohol and drugs. Do you know what I mean? Because 100%. I I certainly didn't want to not be in control as well. But yeah. let's talk about sexual assault. Mm-hmm. Um, is that as prolific in the industry like everybody talks about?
1: Well, you know, obviously, throughout the Me Too movement, loads of people have come forward and told of their stories. And Carla, I don't think you and I are so dissimilar that we probably have the same experience. Yeah. Not many people want to do that to us because mm-hmm. we're ball breakers, yeah. right? I'm not going to cower and freeze and wonder what to say next or what to do next. Yeah. I'm going to make a joke of it and probably make you feel a little humiliated. And so I think that's very obvious from the way we present from the get-go. And anybody who preys on weaker-minded women to try to get what they want in a professional setting, they know who they're going after because it's easy to pray. And they look at us and think like, nah, nah, I just don't like how that could turn out. So I think for that reason, I haven't suffered a lot of that. Not to say that I haven't suffered any because in my younger years, I wasn't as tough. I wasn't as yes, knowledgeable. That's and what I, I would dis-
2: say. I would say, like, as I got older, I also had Al as my protector. And so everybody knew that we were together. And I think having a male yep. mentor that says you're not available yep. also is really huge. Or somebody female that's older that says, don't, like, don't do that. Yeah. Don't mess with her.
1: Yeah. And definitely the younger me was not as confident and aware of my, and, and not only aware of my environs, but aware of my own power. The power of my confidence, I think, is how I navigate now. I'm so confident about my power, and I'm so confident about my personality, and I'm so confident about how it will be received, probably through repetition over the 33 mm-hmm. years of being in television, that I walk into a room and the first thing I do is like, how is everybody? I don't wait for someone else to talk. Yes. I get into an elevator and I say, how are you doing? What a day. You put people at ease right away and the room opens up. And so. The same way you can, the room can open up, you can shut the room down yeah. and you can shut whatever you think is about to happen down just with your same presence. So I think I've mastered that. But back in the, my twenties, there were a couple of episodes where I was just like, oh, well, I don't know what to do right now. Mm-hmm. And then I had a, I had a Roger Ailes moment where I was interviewing that. Remember I told you he made yeah. two offers yeah. to me. He, he offered me a, a job and I went across the street to NBC and they offered me a job within one hour bizarre. I thought TV was so easy. Why <laughs> <Boy>, would <laughs> things change? But and then he counteroffered. But in that first meeting, he asked me two things: How do you vote? Number one, and I'm like, Well, I'm Canadian, so I can't. And then the other was do a twirl. And I was just like dumbfounded because I, I guess I did. It all happens in real time. Like you have seconds yeah. to process that, and at the same time decide what am I going to do? I guess I'm doing what I'm doing. You know? Because yeah, you're
2: going to do bad. the twirl.
1: I don't want to make life uncomfortable in this moment. And if I do anything to try to process what's happening, discomfort sets in instantly. So you just kind of do what you're being asked with and thinking like, what the fuck is going on? Right. And so I did the twirl and I wondered, is this really what I think it is? Or is it, it can't be, it's, he's probably looking at my suit. No, it's, this can't be what I think it is. And then it's over. So that's one moment, but it never got beyond that. Another moment was in a, a, a local news station where again, deadline was upon us. Showtime was coming down. And I had discovered that that an editor had cut a very significant portion of a documentary I'd produced that was going to air. And I'd worked on it for months. They had just sort of ham-handedly slashed 30 seconds out of it, which for people watching who don't understand or people listening who don't understand, it it can mean that the rest of the documentary won't make sense Mm -hmm. because somebody I'll name in that 30 seconds, I'll refer to later as her. And you'd be yes. like, fuck who, who? But that was my fear was that this had happened. So I, I sort of went flying into the news director's office with 30 minutes to air. And I said, oh my God, you need to help me. So-and-so has just done this big cut rather than precision cutting, which wouldn't damage the rest of the, the hmm. editorial. You need to help me out. And I was met with this dead silence and this shit-eating grin stare. And the words that came out of the news director's mouth were, you're so adorable when you're angry you want to have dinner later? And I was like, what? And lucky for me, my confident person kicked in and I said, for Christ's sake, did you really just like, shut up? Yeah. Get on this. I got 30 minutes to air. This is a big deal. I've worked on it for two months. Like I sort of spewed out the facts rather yes. than panicking about the reality and it worked, but that happened.
2: I do believe in And I, and I... I don't know if you got the chance to watch the morning show, but it was quite mm-hmm. interesting. What it I really enjoyed real. about the show was the subtle sexual harassment. When Jennifer Aniston's character realizes that she slept with Steve Carell because she felt sorry for him, and the nurturer caregiver in her did that, and she never saw it as sexual harassment until that very moment. In the last episode, where she just loses it Mm. and says, This is a company of so much abuse to women and to anyone that does not empower. I thought that was a really powerful scene on how I think women do that. I do think that to soothe a man, they have sex with them just to get their ego back up.
1: Oh, I mean, I would say yes, but that to me isn't an epiphany because I think (laughs) to be really frank, and this has nothing to do with like my job or anything, but I think just women fake orgasms to make sure the guy doesn't feel like he's, you know, and like, wow, either that or they fake orgasms to like, I'm done with this and I don't really want it to go on any longer. And this is the only way that I communicate silently, you know?
2: For women, you know, that have that with their husband, it's different, or their boyfriend. But in the workplace, the power that someone else can hold. I even thought another amazing scene is when the woman said to Jennifer Aniston, you don't know what I'm talking about because you've been in power for so long. And I thought, women in power, I don't think it's on purpose that they don't look at the issues happening. I just think they're so damn busy trying to survive. But as women, we need to watch out for the women. But yeah. you don't think about it until I found that there were a lot of things that were in that show that I was just questioning myself over. Do you know what I mean? Like going like, Yeah, did I help women when I needed? Were there women that were in Jennifer's? place with deep that felt just to pacify or just to,
1: you probably didn't even know, didn't even know. On. you can't beat yourself up over that honestly because you probably didn't even know it's absolutely true that when you're in the position of power you're not navigating the obstacles and the truth is when you're not in a position of power a woman's dynamic going into a room is navigate the obstacles there are going yes. to be obstacles yes But a man going into that same room with the same level of power dynamic has no off. So there's not going to be a moment where you freeze and you think, holy shit, do not turn this into something uncomfortable or you're finished. You will not get the project. You will not be the one sent off to on the great trip. You're finished. Your whole dynamic in your job is making your boss like you. Right. Yes. And so anything that comes into play that diminishes that is a strike against you across the board. So, you laugh at their jokes. Everybody does. The men laugh at their jokes. The women laugh at yes. their jokes. Even when they're awful, you like, ah, ha, that's awesome. Um, because you do not want a moment of awkward. That's right. A moment of awkward means that guy now feels like he's failed because of your dynamic. And so you can never let that dynamic get that way. And so any cutesy pie comments or gestures have to be met with the same joke that's laughed at. Right. And if you I don't mean, realize how many times they've laughed at really shitty jokes uh, because they don't want to jeopardize their standing. Now take that dynamic and make it sexual and see how you feel.
2: I mean, for you, you were many years in power, and then many years fighting to get back that influence. And do you have experience? You remember where you felt you had no voice and you couldn't believe that you had a voice with that person a year ago, two years ago.
1: Oh, all the time. I mean, that's my life, right?
2: Yeah. And what what does that feel like?
1: And everybody takes your call and you think that they think you're the greatest. And the next minute you don't have that show and you can't get through to the person or the secretary says, "Um, Oh yeah, um, he'll, he'll get back to you or they'll get back to you. And, I shouldn't say secretary. That's such a '70s student No, I know. I, I the, assistant. You know, the, the assistant says, um, "Can I take a message?" He's just busy right now, and you're like, "What?" You know. And it happens in the flash, and and so yeah, no, that's a that's a regular cycle. I actually expect it now, so I'm not surprised by it now.
2: Who has stayed faithful and loyal to you, even no matter that's, what?
1: That's such a great question. God, such a great question because I think about them all the time. Hmm. My staff members all the way along. I am so tight with my MSNBC staff members. One of them regularly calls and emails me. And when I say that, I mean once a week and asks me for help on a project. Can you edit my script? Can you take a look at it? I'm having trouble with this stand-up, and can you help me out with it? And I'll do an edit for them and send it back. And and on one of the, this person got an award. And so for me, that's such, it makes me feel so good about me that, they come to me or that we're still friends and then five or six others on that show from 20 years ago are still really close friends of mine. They're still really tight. And I just ended up working with the producer with whom I did war and a whole bunch of other stuff. That person and I just came off another project together. And right now at core TV, I'm working with somebody who I spent seven years with on a show at CNN and we're, we're partnered again. And, but the friendships is what for me has meant so much because I do remember the press was also, as I was trying to find out, why did NBC throw me away? Like what, what, what Mm -hmm. did I do? It felt like I did Coke off a hooker. Like that was how it felt, but I didn't do Coke off a hooker. So what did I do that was so awful? And I remember the press grappling with it and wondering, well, was it this, was it that, was it this, was it that? And then I remember the New York times asked, well, we think it's maybe because she was difficult or she was a diva or something like that, or maybe that was it. And I kind of remember thinking like, that's an incredible statement about how a woman will be covered compared to how a man will be covered. Nobody ever said that Chris Matthews was a diva or Mm -hmm. difficult to get along with. You know, it was more like he said racist things or whatever, which was, uh, you know, that's not fair. I mean, they really Slammed him with a with a really broad stroke, but they don't go to the same places with a man as they do with a woman. You know, yes. you're a diva, you're difficult, whatever. And I sort of remember thinking, like, if I'm so difficult, or if I was so, if I was a diva, none of those people would want to have anything to do with me once they didn't have to. Right? Yes. Once yes. I'm gone and they're they don't need to talk to me anymore, there'd be no effing way they'd want to come to my yes. birthday, drive an hour from the city, spend the next fifteen years as my friend. And, and what, then, about, what so that's about, the kind of thing that really, really rubbed me the wrong way is people who called me difficult or a diva, or that must be why you were dumped. You must be difficult to work with. And it's like, not if all those people are still really close to me.
2: What about people that continue to stay in the limelight? Were any of them loyal still? Or were they just... Oh, yeah.
1: They- oh, 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 yeah. And it, it's so funny you say that because even just today... I was watching morning news. I won't say who, and I won't say what hour, but and I won't say what network. But I texted the person on the air saying, "Hey, that was great. By the way, we're due for a catch-up," and and I do that really regularly. I'll text somebody, someone, well, a few different people while they're on air, and say, "You really nailed that. That was amazing," or something stupid like, "Sweet dress, where'd you get it?" You know, whatever. Yeah, and we'll, yeah. We'll, we'll, we'll chat back and forth, and I would say not a word of a lie. There's probably Just think for a second. Four or more at CNN. Four at MSNBC. One at Fox. That that many people that I have, and those are on-air people that I have a regular rapport with, a regular relationship with. And it might be just a conversation twice or three times a year, some of them is like once very regularly, but yeah, still very good, good relationships with people I trust and I trust their judgment.
2: As we think about that, and I agree with you, that's, it It does make a world of difference that people you work with continue to be loyal and support you. And, oh, and when you're way, in,
1: Half women, half men. Yes. Like, that's not just a sisterhood. That's, that's just professional anchor people with whom I've worked. I'd say in that count that I just gave you half for women, half for men roughly.
2: And do you ever have dreams like daydreams that you're at the very top again in the news world and how you would want to change the culture if you no, could have the power?
1: No, the daydreams I have now are more how different it is not being in the grind because I now have not been in the daily grind for a year and a half. Yes. and. All of a sudden, I'm realizing how appalling that life is. I wasn't aware of it at the time. I knew I was tired all the time and working really hard all the time and, and kind of short with my kids and having to schedule time with them and, and and having to like have a household run by someone else. And now I realize on a human level how appalling it is to live that way and to live that way for 30 years. So I think now about a daily live news cable job, and I wouldn't do it. I don't think it's healthy. I don't think it's physically healthy. I slept four hours a night for 30 years. Mm -hmm. On, On the good nights, I'd get five or six. But for easily the last two decades, four hours was a pretty normal average. It's not healthy. It's probably taken years off my life. It's caused a family dynamic that you can't go back from that. That's kind of the way it is. And I I look at life now and COVID, I think, has helped us all to just slow down and smell roses because you're stuck in front of the rose bush and it's not so bad. And I feel that, like the model that everybody else is experiencing under COVID, the slowdown, the demand to slow down is what I've been experiencing for the last year and a half since I got off the daily wheel. And now I look at television as... There's several ways of being on top. There's being Anderson Cooper, who's never off the air. And then there's being documentary styled talent like Paula Zahn, who Mm -hmm. work a lot less hours for the same amount of money and have 10 times the amount of time to do things that they enjoy that are healthy, maybe work out every day, spend time with your family, actually have a sit down dinner that you cooked. Maybe have that long conversation with your kid that you need to have because you have the hour, whereas you try to rush through it before and it's never the same. It's never effective. So I I think being on the top now does not mean being at the top of cable news because I think there's a lot of loss that a lot of people don't realize is happening.
2: I think there's a lot of loss for a lot of people that have to put work ahead of their life And in some ways, it's a choice, and other times it's not, which is unfortunate.
1: And by the way, that's that's not to say that I wouldn't do cable. I, I would do it, but I would do maybe a weekend show. But I just don't think I ever want to get back into that lifestyle anymore, where your world is not yours from the moment you wake up, which is too early, to the moment you go to bed, which is too late. Everything in between has to fit into the live demand, not the other way around.
2: Well, I thought and I don't mean to bring back this show, it's the only thing the morning show, how lonely Jennifer Aniston's life was. Lonely, sad, no relationships, mm. repetitive. No good ones, right? Yeah. No real ones. Just up and down and just that was it. Do you know what I mean? And, yeah. you know, having to always be positive and interested. and But then it's also like, an addictive, for sure
1: that show itself was very histrionic to me and not very realistic. Like I hope you, anybody who has watched that show doesn't think that's the way the news business is. It really is not. People aren't that freakish, you know, they're not that, you know, (laughs) I just, I wanted her character to shut the fuck up because it was way too much drama. Yeah. And it's not like that. It's really not. And I keep coming back to busy. People don't have time to toil and silly, but In the news business, certainly in the cable news business, you are fucking busy. You don't have enough minutes in the day to finish your job. You go on half prepared every day. You go on half prepared every day. If you're really, really good at if you work really, really hard, you're about half as prepared as you'd like to be. So there's no time for all that other bullshit. And so Aniston's character is just way too drama ridden. For reality. And and all television depictions of, of course, cable yes. news have never really hit the mark.
2: Do you think it's possible for big people like Aniston um, Cooper, any of them to have a life? I mean, it just seems like they're they're always working.
1: Yeah. Well, don't forget, Anderson is 53 and just adopted a baby, or just had a baby, has a surrogate baby. Yeah. It's, I believe it's his own baby. But so for 53 years, Anderson has only had himself to look after, and so his entire world, much like when I was at NBC, was this work. Yeah. And so that was my life, and my friends were the ones at the office. My friends were the people at the office. Yes, you know, agree. The people I Saw, enjoyed, maybe mm-hmm. I with afterwards, but I didn't have anybody else outside the office. And, yeah. And so I don't know that that's necessarily lonely. I I, I certainly didn't feel lonely when I only had my friends at the office. I mm-hmm. didn't feel lonely at all. Mm-hmm. I was consumed by this project, yes. you know. It was my hobby, my project and my family. So when you lose all that, that's pretty profound. So Jennifer Aniston in that character had a child and a husband and wasn't doing well by any of them. Yeah. So I can see how she was lonely. And yeah, I do think that there is a sense a little bit of loneliness. Yeah. But there are also people who call it in a little more than certainly I did. I've seen lots of people in cable who It it shocks me that the viewer doesn't see it. It shocks me that the viewer doesn't see it.
2: I mean, but you know, the viewers always hear what they want to hear and see what they want to see. And
1: they get lulled, they get lulled into a uh, format that looks like it. That's the way the format looks like it should go. But if you really stopped down and saw that anchor person literally asking a new question, every time the answer finished, it wasn't a conversation. It was a dictation and a response, a dictation and a response, a dictation and a response. Those are the anchors that are literally following a line of questions that are on a teleprompter or a script in front of them, but they're not saying, well, hold it. How can you say that? Because last year I was watching you when I did that case. And that wasn't what you said. And that can't be on a prompter because you can't assume you're going to know what he's going to answer. So if you're a discerning viewer, you will definitely see it. If you're a past a viewer, you're just seeing anchor person doing an interview.
0: In just a second, more of Carla's conversation with Ashley, including stories from school where Ashley talks about her struggles, developmental issues, her teen years where she discovered self-awareness, and then we go time-traveling through the decades
3: with Ashley. This is going to be a lot of fun. Just a quick interjection. I'm Zach Tolstoy, one of the founders of Stand Up Speak Up. Our podcast is just one part of the Stand Up, Speak Up brand. We are supported by an online store of the same name where we sell a variety of artisan products. We have an ongoing blog series with over a dozen contributors and we offer a series of interactive workshops. Throughout the different iterations of Stand Up, Speak Up, our core message and purpose have always been the same. To create a site that allows our customers and us more opportunities to speak up about and support causes, organizations, and groups that we're passionate about and that of course could use additional support. My mother and I have learned about allyship over the years from what feels like a thousand and one places and people. We want to encourage members of this fantastic Stand Up Speak Up community to come along and learn with us. So along with our team, we created this workshop featuring videos articles and exercises that have really helped the two of us in our own journey towards allyship. Don't worry, it doesn't cost any money and you don't need to make an account to access the information. We want to make our workshop as accessible as possible because we believe in our message and understand the importance of spreading awareness. The Ally Workshop is split into eight parts, including interactive quizzes and helpful videos. It's intended to introduce you to new skills and courses of action in the world of allyship. The workshop is easy to use and can be done entirely on your cell phone, tablet, or computer at your own pace, with each of the eight sections taking an average of about 15 minutes or so to complete, or a breezy couple hours on a Sunday afternoon.
2: I do think there's also, I mean, just about our nature versus our nature. I mean, a lot of people say to me, you know, my God, you have terminal cancer. Just relax. Focus on your health. And I love to work. I love to have purpose. My work doesn't make money. It all goes to donation and community, but it's busy work. And I actually hate when people tell me that. It annoys me irritates
1: me. Same with Don, Don Cones. He hates that. He's like, I'm going to go climb that mountain.
2: What relaxes me and what I enjoy is having purpose. So the more you tell me that, the less I want to talk to you. And I have tried to say so many times, I love that I have a greater purpose than myself. And I just feel like with you, that's a lot of you as well do you believe you could ever retire and just raise your kids, even if you had all the money and you could?
1: Such a good question because honestly, my whole life I have had an inside joke in my head like retire. Why would anybody do that? It's not even in the the most distant possibilities yes. for me. I never want to retire. I want to be like Barbara Walters. That, 80, I want to yes. be doing project-based shows. Maybe not a live show because this is frigging grueling. But yeah, I'm always going to be doing this. This Again, it's my hobby. It's my work. It's my family. It's my life, right? As mm-hmm. I've gotten older and I've had the boots taken to me so many times, I think more about actually retiring. And then I get a little whisper like, but you wouldn't want to never exist again, publicly, you know, like you wouldn't want to just go off and be grizzly Adams. You wouldn't want to just disappear into one house. But I do, but it's funny because the battle was never existent before. It wasn't even a conversation I used to have with myself. Now I have that conversation every day. How long to retirement? How long to Sunday night, not giving me agita because I know the freedom's over and I'm back on the wheel, you know? Yes,
2: I don't think anybody likes Sunday night. Even I don't like Sunday night, and yeah. I don't really have to work the next day, but I'm getting yeah. but, but think of a retirement, because my retirement is doing things I love to do. It's right. not a grind. I mean, some days it's a grind, and we get sales. You know, there is a grind to it. But think of a job where you
1: don't have the grind. Yeah, that would be lovely. Because right now, work is all based on staying alive, you know, and keeping yes. my family alive in my two- tooth- Kids are going to an America. You know, will be going to American universities. Like, shit. Oh, you know, like that's that's the most daunting thing in my future. And for that, I'm going to have to work, whether it's at McDonald's or on television. So, you know, if I had a big bucket of money I was sitting on, it would relax me so much more that I could just do whatever, whenever. But when you have to work. You live in a scary world far more often, especially as a a woman at 52 in television. You know, women, just look at your cable news faces right now. The women are at their oldest in their 40s and usually early 40s. There are one or two women who are not, but that's it. Men, easily late 40s into their 50s and a few in their 60s, but women, not.
2: What about retiring into the Canadian
1: I would love to retire at Lake the woods if I could do some project based work and jump on a plane. Yeah. I mean, I, I would very happily do that. Happily do that. I have American children and an American husband. I do have to be mindful of that, but I think, you know, I have not lived at home since I was 17 and I've been on an airplane. Mm-hmm. every time to see my parents and my siblings, I, it requires yes. an airplane since I was 17, it requires an airplane. Yes, And I didn't, suffer. That wasn't, that wasn't life altering. Like I was grown up. And so I think my kids would be just fine if they were living their United States life and came home for Christmas, came home for Thanksgiving, came home for weekends, came home for summers and saw me just as look, they probably will see me more than I ever saw my parents.
2: I mean, I just think of even selling your house and all that stuff, how well you could live in Canada just from the dollar alone. And I mean, would
1: you? House I'm in right now, Carla. There's this thing that's playing out here. I'm in the suburbs, right? I'm in Connecticut. I'm yes. 55 minutes from New York City. It's a commuting town. Metro North is one minute away from me, and boom, you're right yes. in Grand Central. So, all these people, 8 million people who live in tiny little apartments in New York City and have yes. been stuck in that tiny apartment doing their school, yes. their work, their babysitting, their marriages in the equivalent of like maybe three rooms and they've basically been told by their companies. I don't think we're going to change really that much because work from home is cheaper for us and we can see the model works. So all of a sudden millions of New York families that pay a couple million dollars a piece for these little tiny patches are now seeing, you mean I can be doing this out in the suburbs and maybe when this all resolves in a year or a year and a half, I can commute in a day or two a week. They've all come running out to the suburbs and they're buying up houses within 24 hours. So if you put your house on the market now, it sells way above asking and it sells in 24 hours. So if I sold this house now, I could probably retire in Canada.
2: That's but it's pretty incredible. I mean, yeah. just because doing some great gigs on Fifth Estate or W5 and just being a documentary on interesting topics. I don't know.
1: But that doesn't change that, that I still have like children, of course children of course. in school. So if I could, it yes. would be but I still have five more years of this school district. But there, something like our,
2: you would consider. You would consider something
1: like that. Yeah, not not until the kids are, are, are gone and out in college because like I said, they're in a school district that is one of the number one school districts in the country, public school. And so I'm kind of trapped. Yeah. I really can't leave here. So it looks like I'm sitting on this amazing possibility here, 55 minutes from the city, but I can't do anything about it because they're still. Well, let's talk
2: about being the breadwinner. What kind of pressure is that?
1: I mean, it's it's always been, I have this amazing model. You know, I have my mom who made it normal. And so Mm -hmm. I live in a weird town where it's a lot of bankers and financial industry executives, hedge funders, it's all the rich people from New York City, right? All the rich mm-hmm. all the people who make loads of money from New York City come out to, to these suburbs. And so because they make so much money, the wives have had the luxury of stopping down in their extraordinary careers. These people are from Dartmouth and Princeton <laughs> and you know Yale and Harvard. Yes, and of Smith, course. Right? They're all like Ivy grads who are working in banking and finance and then they have the luxury of having children and saying, you know what? You're making more than enough to support this incredible lifestyle. And, and we're hiring a nanny to look after our kids. So I'm going to stop down and do kids in the home. Yeah. And I'm going to do it with the executive knowledge and, and skill set. Yeah. So they're running these amazing enterprises all around town. These children are just getting the most incredible home executives. And they don't have to you know do what I do, which is both. <laughs> So in that respect, I get a little bitter that I don't have the luxury of of using my skill set just to run these teenagers who mm-hmm. need me so much and this home and I'm, I'm trying to double both. But But apart from that, my little tiny bit of bitterness has abated in the 14 years I've lived here. But I also have that model of my mom. So that's helped a lot just in knowing that when you do this, it's not weird.
2: I feel like your attraction to men has been men that will be more of a support. You've never really fallen in love with a huge breadwinner. That's never been your type of guy.
1: I don't know that that's true. Let, it's sort of happenstance. I, you know, I really not. It's not I know that I'm driven towards someone who's going to support me. I know that's never been it.
2: No, but I know exactly. Like, like if we think of the three major I mean, loves in it. your life, let's look at the three loves of your life. Maybe there's one I don't know of, but there is. Drew, way back in your early years
1: yeah that was a blip
2: <laughs> yes that was but who was for howard
1: the first real profound love of my life who we discussed marriage was the dentist from canada oh, that's right from, from edmonton and that was a six-year relationship and, oh, and he was making hell of a
2: oh my god he was a, so adorable
1: he was fantastic he, he was perfect except that he had a he was living a double life for a year and a half yeah Another person on the side for a year and a half. No,
2: you've always been. I don't mean to say this. I don't know. Is it a naive? Is it a something in you that always believes in the good?
1: Yeah, probably. Or you know what? I'm probably the same as every other girl. And you want to see, uh, you want to believe the things that you see are it. And you yes. maybe you edit out the things that are possible that there's hints to the lower layer that's not as savory. And I think we all, even when we buy a dress or when we look at a product online, we're like, oh my God, it's perfect. Look at all these attributes. And you, you tend to only but focus you where you want are, to have
2: an intelligence much higher than the average person. When I hear you pronounce things so correctly, when I hear you talk and ask questions, and I just think, God, I don't even know how to say that word. Much less ask them a question.
1: But I work with words. I better, I better. Yes,
2: I just cannot pick up. I mean, I'm so dyslexic. It's horrible. So for me, to hear you talk about like all these leaders in Saudi and their names are so confusing. I'm always like, oh, that's so impressive. And so um, in control and so focused. You have this vulnerability Mm. side to you. and once that person you know gets in you're all trusting
1: yeah you're right but I would say I used to be all trusting okay and I'll I'll, I'll quote George Bush (laughs) fool me once shame on you fool me twice I won't get fooled again (laughs) yes yes okay so you feel like is fool me once shame on you fool me twice, shame on me. And so I think I'm more in the second realm now, where I I live far less wholeheartedly trusting of anybody and anything. Now I'm, you know, it's sad. As you get older, you get you just get a little bit more rigid and less less vulnerable. But I think it's just a product of aging and getting smart. Nobody likes to get smacked twice.
2: I mean, if there's a dark room and it's just you and you're all stripped away, and it's just Ashley. And it's Ashley from a child all the way up, or you even just being with you as a child. What does that look like? Who are you saying to your younger self? Smart up. <laughs> and what else are you saying?
1: Well, you know, it's interesting because I look at my younger self and I realize that I was probably diagnosable as ADHD, if not ADD. Mm-hmm. And back in the 60s and 70s, nobody knew anything about it, nor did they know how to help support a student or a child like that. Yes. And so as everybody knows now, a, an ADD or an ADHD child is extremely frustrating and it drives you mm-hmm. crazy. So mm-hmm. teachers would would react without the benefit of knowledge completely the wrong way. They would let their own frustrations get the better of them and they would just lash out at me or banish me. So I got banished a ton. My biggest memories of school is being banished and sent out in the hall or sent to the back of the classroom or sent in the corner. I remember my entire 5th grade year the the classroom was set up in a horseshoe facing the teacher and Ashley's desk was outside of the horseshoe in the back corner of the room at the entrance to the coat room. That's how I lived my entire fifth grade year, and whenever it can, and this is Winnipeg, so it's freezing. So the coat room is yes. a very busy place. And whenever, and then this, I think this teacher did out of spite, and I will never forgive her for making me live the humiliated life that I did in in that classroom for a year. She would line everybody up to go into the coat room and walk past my desk, and I would sit there in humiliation, knowing that I was other than they all belonged in the horseshoe and they are now all filing past my desk to get their coats. But I wasn't allowed to get up first and just go and get my coat so that I didn't have to live through this humiliation of all the kids walking by. And I think if there's one thing that exacerbates the condition of a child who's already developmentally Mm -hmm. challenged, it's that. Yeah. And I really wish that there'd been some knowledge about how to help and support an IEP an, an individual edu- education, mm-hmm. plan, as they call it down here back then. But there was no such thing. It was just get the hell out of my hair. You drive me nuts. You're obnoxious. I uh, that was what everyone called me. You're obnoxious. You're obnoxious. You're a brat. You're a brat. That was the lingo that became just normal to me.
2: Now we're moving up the years. We're going into your teen years and it's you looking at yourself and it's you telling that little person that teen why it's going to be okay and what's it going to be okay
1: about I don't think it I don't think it will be okay quite frankly if I had something I could tell that teenage version of me I would give them the lessons that yet again somebody who suffers from a developmental challenge like ADHD or ADD it's the coping mechanisms and the behavioral recognition and the change in behaviors that you have to work towards. So, I would tell that teenager and that young college kid because I went off to college at seventeen. You have to be more self-aware, and you have to be more aware of your environs. So, your self-awareness is what your needs are. Your immediate needs are: I need to be heard. I need this thing. I need to go there. I need someone to give me something. Being aware of those things for starters is step one. Then catapulting them into the environment around you and figuring out, is that going to poison the environment around me if I make that sort of known? Or if I make that known five times? So I would counsel that teenager, pull back, be aware of all of these needs you think are so critical because you need the self-satisfaction of the thing, the attitude, the, the, the behavior, the whatever it is you need and realize that everyone around you does not want to be a part of that, or does not want to provide you, or okay, doesn't go. have the time to listen to your needs, you know? And I think that would make that 17-year-old, that 17-year-old's life moving forward a lot easier and a lot more successful.
2: Okay, let's go to a moment. What moment do you remember that would have been the moment when you as a teenager needed to understand that.
1: So funny. There's probably so many, but there is this one that constantly stands out, and I don't know why, because it was pretty small. But a friend of ours, Joanne Quinton, John Quinton's sister. Okay, yeah. Convinced me when I was 16 to enter the Miss Teen Winnipeg pageant. Because she had won it the year before. And she said it was so much fun. And she said, You got to do it. You got to do it. And, and we were actually walking together through the mall, I think. And she said, Enter it. Enter it. So I entered it as a, on a lark. And I got in as a, a, a finalist. I think there were like know, maybe 10 finalists or something. And the thing, there, there were interviews we had to do and all sorts of stuff. But then the one thing we had to do is we had to do a fashion show. And we each had a little space in the back of the the little setup in the mall, like behind, you know, screens that we could get ready. We could get dressed, put on makeup and and do the fashion show. And there was a cover-up stick missing out of my makeup. And I had a pimple and I was Mm -hmm. flipping out because I couldn't find the cover-up stick. And I was going around saying, has anyone seen it? Has anyone seen it? Has This is really important to me. Like, has anyone seen it? Has anyone seen it? And, and every, all the girls were like, no, sorry, I haven't seen it. You know, they're all cash but it's huge to me. It's my need that has to be satisfied. And I'm not aware enough at 16 years old, this isn't everyone else's problem. It's just your problem. So stop making it everyone else's problem. Because I remember after this frantic, where is it, where is it, where is it? it? Did someone take it? Did someone take it? Did you you see it? Where is it? You guys, I need this cover-up stick. I need this cover-up stick. That when this silence fell upon us, I knew I had behaved in an unacceptable way.
2: How did you know that? How did you feel?
1: I felt it. I could feel the palpable discomfort. Probably in my mind, I was saying, yeah, but I'm right. I'm right. I should have been able to ask everybody, you know, in my mind. But that discomfort was there. And then... Not only did I not win the pageant, I didn't win anything. Like I didn't even win Miss Congeniality, which at that point I kind of thought I'd be everybody's pal, right? Yeah. And I think that was like a really profound hit that mm-hmm. I think you didn't win Miss Congeniality because you were like such a freak in in the makeup room like trying to find that makeup stick, you annoyed everybody else for your problem. Yeah. It was really only your problem, it wasn't theirs, but you made it theirs. And I don't know why that episode sticks out. But it does, it just, it's like just that moment I always think about back then, like you can't make everybody else suffer for a tiny little problem of yours, or you can't suck them all into your little problem.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: You have to solve it yourself. You can ask, but then only ask once, you know? Yeah. And so I think that was another wake up call that I probably had and still probably do to this day, some kind of attention deficit affliction
2: unable to to read the immediate read. energy around you
1: 100 you can't read the energy around you and yeah. your energy is so much bigger than it, it, yes. it, it else's would be in similar circumstances like a reasonable man would not have had it wouldn't have bothered them that much they wouldn't yes. have been so focused on it they couldn't breathe you know
2: okay so let's go into our 30s what are you telling your 30 year old self and
1: probably a lot of the same thing
2: yeah, what now what happened? What's that business? moment that just stays with you? I mean, you, at that time, you're finishing up your show well, in your early 30s, right? How old early were
1: you? 30s, I'm in Texas doing local news. Oh,
2: God, that's right. That's
1: right. No, there's really no individual moment that stands out. There's just the day-to-day, everyday routine that stands out. And... There was a producer who was a, a woman who was terribly nasty to me. And I was, you know, I'm a, I'm a writer and I, I mm-hmm. like writing. I'm not an anchor that shows up and when local news, you can just show up and read a prompter. You literally don't even have to be there. So some local anchors do that, especially moms who are looking after kids and think this is a great job. And I don't have to really be there so long, but others look at it as their, their project, their hobby, their family. And that yeah. was what, what it was for me. And so I wanted to write all the scripts that I did. And I remember the female producer was such a control freak. She would not let me, she would allow me to edit them, like go over them, but she wouldn't let me create them and start, start the project and write the project. Uh. And, and when I kind of insisted on it, she'd do it one at a time, like throwing me a Cheerio and saying, well, when you finish that Cheerio, you can come back and ask me for another. And it was a very stressful power. Well, you
2: had no power. Your voice wasn't being hurt, right? You were being someone's puppet.
1: I'm in this project. I should be on the project and I shouldn't have to beg, you know, one at a time. And she was enjoying the power dynamic. I think she was just a very sadistic kind of woman, not the kind of woman I would ever aspire to be like. I didn't want to befriend her. I just found her to be sort of a very toxic type. I think in that situation, I don't think I could counsel myself to say, just back off and don't ask for those projects anymore because i'm like well no i'm not gonna i'm not gonna just be an anchor reader that's or just
2: maybe yeah like no just maybe just hug your younger self maybe just hug say i know this sucks and it's shitty and it's it's,
1: it's not permanent Around the
2: corner it's not permanent
1: i think that's maybe what i should have said is that you're like this piecemeal cheerio doling shit isn't going to change don't think you can change it don't complain about it just suck it up and get through this phase because everything's yeah. a phase and maybe that phase. would have been the advice
2: okay now you're in your 40s what's one of your moments where you would have liked yourself to counsel yourself
1: yeah I don't know it's a good one because uh 40s I had babies I had new babies and probably I counsel myself to be more patient with them rather than think that you can run babies like you can a newsroom like after a day of looking after babies, there's there's no tangible product to say, look what I have. Look how great mm-hmm. I did today. It's just look how shitty I did today. I didn't get this done. I didn't shower. The kids are crying. I, I'm stressed. And so my project-based life that had an accomplished moment after I said, thanks, everybody. Good night. I never had that anymore. All of a sudden, I had no finished product to be happy or critical or whatever about.
2: How was it during that time? Because Ridley and Fisher, weren't they like high energy kids that stayed up night and didn't sleep? And it was just hard to not be good at something when you've been able to achieve success and and other things. And during that time, would you watch news and be envious? Like, were you just like...
1: Well, it was also a time that I was banished, right? Like, yes. nobody didn't, Ashley, you're, you're a has-been. So I was lucky. I got a great job at Court TV while I was literally the last few months of my first pregnancy. And, and the next five years, I worked at Court TV, which was a great job because it was no nights, no weekends, no overtime. Mm-hmm. When the gavel went down at five o'clock, shows were over. There was no work till two in the morning and then come back in at 6 a.m. And this Breaking stories never ending. You know, there's a one breaking story on top of the next. That wasn't it. We got holidays, weekends, nights, all off. It was a really great place to work and raise a family. And at the same time, a really, really good place to the best place I've ever worked for editorial because lawyers don't take kindly to little mess ups. Yeah, everything was so pristine. The editorial was so clean and so journalistically sound, and the integrity was so high. So in that respect, I really, really loved working there. Nobody cut corners. Nobody was like, "Oh wow, that person didn't really check that source." And it was not like that at all, and that was delightful.
2: Well, and okay, so say, you're there, and you've so got I'm there kids. from
1: 40 to yeah. 45, really.
2: Till so your kids are hyper. You 45. said they took yes. after you, and Howard. No, no, also- no, they
1: didn't take after me. I actually asked my mom. I said, yeah. "Holy fuck, <laughs> I can't cope." Was I like this? And mom said, "No." you weren't that bad. Was so Howard think, like that? Yes. Howard, you know, Howard had a diagnosed ADHD and was medicated as, as a child, but he's also five years younger than me. So when he hit his teens, um, I'm already in my twenties. And so yes. I think, and he's in New York city, which is like the leading edge of all medicine. So, so I got think, more support and they were so wealthy, you know, they had the best doctors anywhere. They would go to any, anybody. So he had the support and the, and the knowledge of his disabilities where I didn't have that benefit. And without question, you know, our children, without getting into their personal lives, have been a very, very difficult struggle. And well, and
2: you've had to take it like a research project and learn, yeah. right? And really just figure it, it, it out. It. Learn it and from around. And, and up. you like to figure things out, but it's not very easy when it's alive. Human that's not when of, you have
1: a full-time job as well. <laughs> you no, want to be doing really one so. or the other. <laughs> not and doing.
2: I do know, like my sister Diane, like, couldn't work. Like, most yeah. people can cannot work in those situations. So, yeah. But okay. I,
1: I had no choice. I, I had to... Yeah, that's right. You're there. You know, I was divorced when the kids were very young and had to look after myself.
2: Okay, so let's talk divorce. about yourself telling yourself during the time that you knew you had to ask for a divorce. Because that was a big decision mm. and a hard decision.
1: Yeah, um, but a necessary one. And again, I won't go into that obviously because I still have the young kids. But you know, you you know when you know, and you know that the path forward will be hard. Yeah. But you know that the current path will be harder. Yeah. And I think most women are really struggle between that metric. They're not sure which one will be harder, but. That was a that was a leap I just had to make, and um, and I also knew that I'd been through really hard times anyway. Right, I, I'd gotten through some of the hardest things. Being a war correspondent was physically grueling. Being cast out of the family of NBC was mentally ravishing. You know, it just yeah. it just it shredded me to pulp. So I sort of knew that there's life after destruction. Um, for, I think a lot of women, it might be their first destruction. And so mm-hmm. it's really hard to make that choice to go into destruction, but I knew I'd been through really hard things before. So, you know, it's kind of like, you don't have a whole lot of choice. So you put your head down, you put your nose to the grindstone and you just power through it. And that was one thing mom was always able to tell me is just power through it, suck it up. Power. So, through was,
2: it. was she your confidant during that time that yeah. helped you? get through it. And what was the hardest?
1: Siblings too. too. They've been, they were amazing, you know, they supported
2: and was one of the hardest things to do, say it publicly was that, or by that time you just couldn't wait to say it.
1: No, I think I got lucky at that point because I was on a low in my career. So it wasn't as though people were scouring court documents for what I've been up to. So my divorce actually passed under the radar for a couple of years. And then when my stars are shining again at CNN by that point. I think anybody who knows she's divorced. Oh, I missed that one I'm embarrassed. I how did I miss that one? But it'd be embarrassing yeah. now four or five years later to say she's divorced because it means you yes. lost you missed the story So I think I passed fortunately under the, the the public spectacle
2: Your older self would just say You've been through worse
1: Yeah, I don't have any counsel for my my 45 year old self beyond because I'm 52, so I'm still in it. Yes, and also, yes. And also, you can't know everything. There's no guarantees in life. No. So if you fall in love with someone and they have great attributes and they have some bad attributes, yeah, that's what's called a cocktail. Yes, <laughs> and so yes. you can't know how that cocktail will ferment further. You just can't.
2: So, okay. for anyone who
1: ever says you should have seen that coming, it's like no, I know you can't see a you lot. You can't of stuff see it you coming.
2: I and mean, you, love you is blind. It. Love changes.
1: Yeah, and 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 by the way, love is important. You shouldn't just be looking at the metrics of well, is the, that person successful? Do they have a career? Are they good? You know, are you in love? Should be yes. the biggest part of your choice. You know. Yeah. You have to be madly in love with someone to marry them. You can't just say, "Mm, well, I'm madly in love with them, but they don't tick a few other boxes, so I'm going to wipe that one off the slate. No, and you can't just Mm. choose marriage because someone ticks a few boxes, but there's no love. So, uh, you know, I don't look at divorce as failure at all for people. I just say it's human. We're all human, you know, and I'm not so sure that we were ever meant to mate for life.
2: Well, I'm pretty sure we weren't. Al, you know, I'm his second wife, and mm-hmm. here he is. He marries younger, and and so okay. Now you're you're, been with Chris, how many years now? Like five,
1: five and a half, <clears throat> and a half, will be six years in October.
2: And I mean, he's just so easygoing. I just wonder—is he as easygoing as he looks?
1: He's super easygoing. <clears throat> I have seen in the last year that the kids have started to get under his skin because before when they're going haywire, he would just kind of move out of the way and, you know, maybe go upstairs or just, he'd, he'd just bring himself out of the circus. Yes. The, the and I see now that he sometimes feels he can't escape and he just explodes like at one o'clock in the morning when the kids are slamming their doors, yes, and yes, yelling at yes. each other and he'll, he'll get up and he'll go for God's sake. <laughs> like he, he's a real dad now, you know, he just, yeah. He's, he's taken the stepdad role and he's moved it right into where it should be, which is like, your dad will blow up at you if you be, if you continue to be an asshole, you know? Do they, so, they
2: call him Chris though?
1: They call him right. Chris. Yeah.
2: Well, okay. I'm a stepmom. I have stepkids, so I can understand, you know, a little bit how it is to be a Chris, but you were, you also had a stepdad and you were the stepchild. Yeah. yeah. And I don't know it from your perspective.
1: Graham was but so quiet. He was so was so passive, right? He would never engage. And when the bandfields were getting loud, he would just move out of the room. You know, yes, yes. <laughs> he doesn't spar. You know, the, I think the bandfields coming into Graham's world was like, "Whoa, this is one loud family." But you know, we were always a really great blended family. We all got along great. There was never anything that went wrong in terms of really? life. Nope, never. I mean, I think his children weren't particularly fond of my mom at the beginning. They certainly came around. One of them was very icy. They came around, but then when he died, they became icy again, which is so sad. But Did uh, you
2: feel that Graham loved you?
1: Yeah. And it was funny. Not so much love, maybe. No, because when you're like, when you're 17, you're not really aware of that stuff. And then when you're in your thirties and forties, like, Oh, I think he adored us. I think he really found us very entertaining. (laughs) And I think he enjoyed us being around because we did bring a lot of effervescence. And I think he also respected us because now we were people that he could actually have Challenging conversations with with about business, and you know, in Gippy, he saw a huge value. He was doing all his financial Mm -hmm. investment work with Gippy, so Gippy was like a king. I think in me, he saw the resilience and the the hard Mm -hmm. work, and the never got a handout, and I still built this life for myself. And I thought, I think he was like blown away by it. And with Alex and Joe, he saw just these even keeled, professional people who had success at home and. And success in the workplace and had built their vacation homes. They didn't get a vacation home given to them. They didn't get a ski home given to them. Like they, they did this stuff on their own. And and I think for that reason, I think he appreciated us four kids because he could see that we had, you know, we did what he did.
2: And was he generous financially Very. or
1: well, not I mean, you never gave us money. Uh, yes. but we didn't need it, right? We were all out on our own, doing our own thing. Well, everybody needs extra money.
2: Fun. Everybody likes a little extra money for whatever it may be. Yeah, but, um, I, mean, look,
1: I can speak for myself, but yeah. um, I needed an $8,000 loan one time in my in my professional life. And it was when I came back from overseas when it was 1991. I'd worked for all of like, I guess, what, three years of my of my professional life. And when I came back from overseas, I had been traveling for one year with a backpack and I was flat broke and thought I'd get a job right away yeah. little did I know jobs aren't that easy to get and certainly in the 80s it was like this recession so I all of a sudden was like oh shit I went back to waitressing yeah. but waitressing wasn't enough even to get a car and so I asked for a loan from my mom and four months later I repaid it with interest because of the waitressing I got a car And I paid back that loan and then I got a job and then I moved on and got an apartment and furniture and and all those things on my own. But my mom had her own money from her very successful career. So Graham was never part of the, like we never went to Graham for money and and Graham never asked us if we needed money. We just, I lived very frugally. I lived in a basement apartment until I finally sort of struck it and and started doing really well eight years into my career, but I was making nothing and living in a, I was driving an old station wagon from the seventies with no heat in Edmonton and Calgary and Winnipeg, and I lived in a basement basement style apartment that cost about three hundred dollars. So we just—I think we just made our—we made our lives what we could afford.
2: What they say is that your values are created from moments of truth that happen and that stick with you for your life, and from that comes. A value, and unfortunately, values are usually made from yeah. negative experience that happened to us. So, you know, as we've gone through this conversation and you brought out some of those moments, what comes across to me, and I want you to stop me and tell me, is that, you know, you have such determination and fear of failure. And that that determination has been such a driving force for you, and that comes across in your stories that you tell about someone holding some element of power over you and refusing to let them take that away from you. And that seems to be, really, if I could summarize Ashley Banfield, would be someone that is determined to course through any obstacle no matter what what happens to you and the resiliency and I, and I really do see that and what would you say your values that that you believe i mean i can only see what what i think they are based on talking with you but i really want to hear from you what do you, what do you think your values are
1: well, I think one of the a very simple, when you teach kids, you have to teach them in very short sentences, right? Yes. Because they're, you know, especially teenage kids and teenage boys. But one of the lessons that I constantly repeat to my two teenage sons is this very simple short sentence that I think speaks volumes. And it is your character is what you do when no one's looking. I think you can extrapolate from that so many things. You know, we have a t-shirt in our store
2: that says do the right thing when no one's looking. Yeah, that's one of my
1: favorites. Yeah, Yeah, that is it. I had a godfather long ago who said, when in doubt, do the good thing. It was Uncle Don McCarthy, and he said it on my confirmation day, and he, you know, gave me a Bible, and I'm not a religious person. But I do remember the moment where I was standing, how short that sentence was. It stuck with me forever. I still remember to this day, I tell my children, and I often ascribe this to him. Yeah. Uncle Don McCarthy, my godfather said, when in doubt, do the good thing. Yeah. And it's the same thing, right? Your character is who you are and what you do when no one's looking. But if you peel that apart, let's let's
2: peel that down. Well, let's just ask, what's your biggest fear? What's a fear that could keep you up at night? You could say it's financial security, but your life has not. You've had so much adventure in your life. I don't know if that
1: could be. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm well aware of my gravest fear. It lives with me every single day. Yeah. My, my greatest fear is not being able to provide for my family. That is my greatest fear every single day when I wake up. And it's why I'm driven to create a production company, uh, build shows, sell shows, keep looking for on-air jobs, high paying jobs that won't take me away from my family too much or kill me. That's my biggest fear is being able to actually manage this metric. And it's, Weird and do you because think because that think, To you, shouldn't my yes. greatest fear be cancer? Like, shouldn't my greatest fear be that? And here no. I am about no. Here's not doing stuff for for my family. no.
2: But that financial stability value of yours has come back in experiences that you faced as a child that you had seen the repercussions of that, and that has made you sick. That that's the theory of values is that you see them when you're under 10 years old or 12 years old and they don't leave you and values are for, are unfortunately fear-based so
1: well in reality too right like even if I yes. hadn't had certain values at eight or ten years old or 12 years old or teen years your current reality yes. will also inform your fears and so my current reality is I have two children I have likely somewhere around a million dollars in college costs coming down the pipe oh my god is shit scary. Because if I help these children launch their lives, mine will be in the shitter. Yes. <laughs> and I can't be guaranteed that they are going to be huge financial successes and be willing to look after mom. You know, So yes. a lot of times I, I just worry about the dynamic of how do I d- give the best to them while at the same time ensuring that I don't self-destruct. Right.
2: Financial stability is one of your big values. That is something you probably have had your whole life, but that really knowing it and then the second one has got to be around this determination resiliency like and maybe that's people telling you that maybe you weren't smart enough or you were this or you were that or whatever i mean i'm sure nobody said you weren't smart enough but there was something wrong with you i feel like you fought so hard
1: no no, that's where that's where i'll disagree plenty of people love to tell you you're not smart enough. I mean, Roger Ailes said it in the New York Times. The NBC people said it as often as they could. People love to tear others down. And I have sometimes believed them, and I have often tried to, you know, measure up myself in the wide vast array of people in the media and thought I just don't measure up to that guy and that guy could run circles around me. But then I and then I sort of forget you know, where I really am in the grand scheme of things. And but I do get carried away in the myopic measurements mm-hmm. of where I stand and then I allow some of that to get under my skin when somebody writes something nasty about me. So no, I think I've been in a permanent struggle with am I smart enough? Am I you know Stuart Am I smiling? good enough? Am I, I worthy? Stuart yeah, and uh, mirror challenge.
2: <laughs> yeah, you know what? It it sucks that so many people have that and it just sucks because it really is what makes us, you know, not as good as we could be, just not believing in ourselves. I mean, right. sometimes I wish that I could be in someone else's body and prove to them that they're good enough and somebody flip into my body and do the same thing.
1: Do the same thing. Yeah. <laughs> you yeah. know, when you, you haven't heard enough people around you saying like, what a dynamo. I mean, I remember hearing it when you were overseas, um, and you weren't spending as much time at the lake anymore, but, you know, you were living in all these far-flung countries and people would say, God, that girl has just got so much talent. She's got talent to spare. She's got drive. She's got all, all this. Like, I mean, that's how people always talked about Carla Stevens, right? What a dynamo, like what a tour de force, uh, what a visionary, you know, that's how I always heard you described. And that you know was what? A- I.
2: <laughs> I always was afraid of being a one trick pony mm-hmm. and I came back you know and I really fucking scared I got successful so young mm-hmm. and then I came back and I fucked it up with this app I did and I put everything into it and I I just thought how can I fail I've been so successful
1: yeah but I don't I don't- I Yeah, I think you're measuring yourself only as your last, you know, your last act. And I don't see that. People say that about television personalities, and I don't believe it. You're only as good as your last newscast. And I'm like, horseshit. Horseshit. Yes, but it's I'm hard to not. Everybody remembers me. And they don't just remember my last newscast, they remember my body of work. And most of the time they still think I'm on morning television. So that's bullshit. <laughs>
2: no, I know, but I just feel like in my brain, that's how it goes. And then,
1: yeah, but you can't.
2: I don't know why any of us, Put ourselves in shit that we don't we don't even know how we're gonna do it or come out of it or be successful. Well, because you know we I mean? have
1: these set, we have driving mechanisms that lead us towards the next big success, right? But the thing is, if if the if the metric were you had one success, you move on to the next project. The next project doesn't work out, you're no longer a success. Then Supertramp would suck. And I happen to like. I know super right? that's my favorite band of all time. I don't remember a good album really since crime of the century, Breakfast in America. But do you know what I mean? Like, if you achieve greatness, you don't have to achieve it every effing day of your life to be great.
2: I know. You can but achieve it's, it's
1: greatness. Like, Just be happy with it, you know?
2: You know, it's so easy to tell other people. I see that so easily in other people what are you talking about? Have you seen your career? Have you seen what you've done? Oh my God. And then,
1: You're too self critical. You're, you're not looking you, at your entire body. You're not looking at how other people perceive you. You're not looking at how the world perceives you. Do you as think individual. that any of us do? No, no, because the no. successful ones keep driving forward, yes. you know, and, and maybe others rest on laurels and say, hey, I had a one hit wonder in the 70s and I'm good. I really believe that we are our own best cheerleader and our own worst enemy. Yeah, We talk ourselves out of things. We talk ourselves out of screwing up relationships. Uh, We talk ourselves out of everything rather than be good and discerning and be able to populate the metric rather than just fear the metric, you know? And I, I really do believe that the most successful people out there have had terribly shitty years.
2: But you know what? I feel like the people that talk about their terribly shitty years are the ones that are back on top,
1: yeah. and I well, hate they, that they they um uh they embrace them and they learn from them. I mean, my stepdad Graham went bankrupt twice.
2: Yes, but you they never a rich. Really talk very about successful it. Guy. They don't talk about it during the experience. Right. They talk about an actor, and I'm always like, well, shut the fuck up. Now you're back on top. Of course you can talk about your failure.
1: Yeah, easy for you to say, yeah. Yeah,
2: I'm still a fucking mourning over my shit job I did. Well,
1: but. there's also the fear that there's a mob mentality out there that seizes upon something and loves to tear down and then maybe eventually build back up a victim. So if you're at your low, the last thing you want to do is – telegraph it because that's right. it allows your challengers to really pound you down and put the nail in the coffin, right? So you're not as apt to amplify something that you think, listen, if I can just get through this, if I can just let this one get under the radar, yeah. I'm good. Yeah. I, I just need to bust my ass and get you know another thing going. And then I'm, I'm right back where I wanted to be. I think that's a survivalist technique. I don't think that's a bad thing.
2: I've had to learn about not living inside my own head that's negative self-talk wake up tomorrow and like you know what like this is the 10 things you're going to get done in the day yeah you're going to figure this out and and then the next night it's like the same self-talk and I, I just wish I could go into everybody's head
1: and also don't beat yourself up for for not having that strength at times right like we all beat ourselves up for what we're not able to do and you know, at times you should just be not able to do things. That's yeah. human. And yeah. you shouldn't maybe at times be able to get out of a headspace. And, and maybe it does require binge watching something. And and that's all natural and normal. And we shouldn't be upset at ourselves for needing a crutch at times or for yeah. welcoming a little bit. Sometimes you just got to cry.
2: You don't want others to feel that they can't talk to you because what you're experiencing is worse than what they're experiencing. And I always have to tell people, if you have a stomach ache, you have a stomach ache. If you have a headache, you have a headache. Have a headache. We're, we're all the same. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like never feel like my issue is worse than your issue because you're experiencing your issue. But usually what I would do if I'm feeling like that, I just don't talk to people. I would not have a call.
1: So I, think I, you should, I think you should lean on your family a little bit more, though, because that's what they're there for. That's what family's family. there for. They're, they're there for you to be able to vent a little. Yeah. You know, yeah. they can I don't take make it. People,
2: I don't want to make people worry. I bet you Don's the same. Like, I would love to talk to Don to see if he takes that same approach, because I'm sure he yeah. does. I hope, I mean, the goal is to stand up speak up is to help teach others and lessons learned. Yeah. Um, about you know, but people that are resilient. I mean, that's really the whole point of the podcast is resiliency. The ability for people to push through trauma, push through situations and get out on the other side and continue to fight. I mean, I love this quote, my favorite quote, life is easy, it's the living that's hard. (laughs) Right? Yes. Um, So what I really hope Ashley, is that this is a great episode where when your kids hear anyone, they're proud that their mom is just so strong.
0: An update, Ashley is host of a nightly talk show on WGN America called Banfield. It's going to have lots of guests and interviews and originates out of Connecticut. Banfield can be seen at 10 p.m. Eastern on WGN America starting March 1st, 2021.
1: The Stand Up Speak Up podcast is made in Canada. Copyright 2018. Find us online at standupspeakupapparel.com. If you have a moment, please leave us a five star rating on Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening to Stand Up Speak Up, another sound off media company podcast.
0: Have you ever thought?